the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for the introduction, Dr. Bill, and welcome to a special Christmas weekend edition of the program. I'm going to entitle this episode today, A Legendary Christmas, and I think you'll know why as we get into it. Well, here we are on the verge of the world's biggest birthday party, and I want to thank you for not just listening today, but listening since the beginning, each and every week. I don't take that for granted. So we're going to mix things up this week. Normally, we feature a conversation with a legend, someone who we can admire, someone whose life is worth emulating. But today, I want you to envision yourself sitting down in front of a warm and crackling fireplace. But just imagine yourself uh, there, and there's a beautiful tree full of lights twinkling beside it. Under the tree, there are wrapped packages. Uh, Each of the segments of this weekend's show is a gift wrapped in one of those boxes, And because this is radio, each of the gifts will include some audio from a legend associated with Christmas. Now, today's gifts come in the form of eight people. Uh, Legendary actor Jimmy Stewart, iconic storyteller Gene Shepard, ABC Radio's Paul Harvey, uh, the Apollo 8 crew, which consisted of Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, and then there's the Reverend James Allen Anderson and President Ronald Reagan. Well, how's that for a lineup? Well, I thought we should start with Jimmy Stewart, and specifically Jimmy Stewart's wholesome hometown character, George Bailey, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life was the first film Stewart made upon his return from flying combat missions in World War II, which was a chapter in his life that he rarely discussed, but he was a heroic and highly decorated pilot. He officially retired from the Air Force Reserve in 1968 as a brigadier general. Now, as you recall, the whole point of the movie is to show us what life in Bedford Falls would be like without George. Well, we quickly discover it would be pretty grim. A dark and foreboding shantytown owned by an evil millionaire named Henry F. Potter, a miserly character played just perfectly by Lionel Barrymore. The film revolves around George, the congenial and affable everyman who bravely stands up to Mr. Potter's greed. Well, let's pick up at a critical point in the film. George's uncle has misplaced some of the money, a lot of money for the time, and he makes his way to Potter. And there he sits in a very low chair beside the old man's desk. It's Christmas Eve, and he's desperate. I'm in trouble, Mr. Potter. I need help. Through some sort of an accident, my company shortened their accounts. The bank examiner got there today... I've got to raise $8,000 immediately. Oh, that's what the reporters wanted to talk to you about. The reporters? Yes, they called me up from your building and loan. Oh, there's a man over there from the DA's office, too, who's looking for you. Please help me, Mr. Potter. 
Help me, won't you, please? Can't you see what it means to my family? I'll pay any sort of a bonus on the loan, any interest. If you still want the building and loan, I'm... George, could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? No, sir, there's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. You misplaced $8,000? Yes, sir. Have you notified the police? No, sir, I, I didn't want the publicity. Harry's homecoming tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you're going to believe that one. What have you been doing, George? Um, playing the market with the company's money? No, sir, no, sir, I haven't. Oh, is it a woman, then? Uh, you know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. What? <laughs> Not that it makes any difference to me, but why do you come to me? Why don't you go to Sam Wainwright and ask him for the money? I can't get a hold of him. He's in Europe. Well, what about all your other friends? Well, they don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. <laughs> I've suddenly become quite important. <laughs> well, what kind of security would I have, George? You got any stocks? No, sir. Bond? Real estate? Collateral of any kind? Well, I have some life insurance. $15,000 policy. Yes. Uh, how much is your equity in it? $500. $500? And you asked me to lend you 8000 Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you with a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> you're worth more dead than alive. You ever feel that way, realizing that you're maybe worth more dead than alive, at least monetarily? Well, a few weeks ago, right here on the program, Max Lucado mentioned that Christmas has a way of magnifying our emotions. And here we are on Christmas Eve, and I wonder if anyone is feeling especially burdened. I think that movie... We'll speak to that. But let's pick up uh, on the movie just after George has jumped in to save Clarence, his guardian angel. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? You're, to save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Oh, where do you come from? Heaven? I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you'd try to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody. AS2, what, what, what's that, AS2? Angel, second class. Cheerio, my good man. Oh, brother. Gee, what, what do 
octane to put in those drinks. Hey, what's... What's with you? What did you say just a minute ago? Why do you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, think, just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wings. Oh, I've got to earn them. And you'll help me, won't you? Sure, sure. How? By letting me help you. Yeah. Only one way you can help me. You don't happen to have 8,000 bucks on you. Oh, you? no, no. We don't use money in heaven. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> Comes in pretty handy down here, bub. Oh, tut, tut, tut. Uh, <laughs> I found it out a little late. I'm worth more dead than alive. Now, look, you mustn't talk like that. I won't get my wings with that attitude. You just don't know all that you've done. If it hadn't been for you... Yeah, it... if it hadn't been for me, everybody would be a lot better off. My wife and my kids and my friends. And my... Look, little fellow, why you go off and haunt somebody else, will no, you? No, now you don't understand. I've got my job. Oh, shut up, will you? Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, eh? Oh, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, I'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. You don't have to make all that fuss about it. What'd you say? You've never been born. You don't exist. You haven't a care in the world. No worries, no obligations, no $8,000 to get, no potter looking for you with a sheriff. Say something else in that ear. Sure, you can hear out of it. What's well, a dog gone thing? I haven't heard anything out of that ear since I was a kid. Must be that jump in that cold water. Your lips stop bleeding too, George. Well, what follows, of course, is the heart of the movie. George gets a chance to see just how much of an impact that he's had on not just his family, but the rest of the town. Now, you know, one of the truisms of life is that everything affects everything else. Everything affects everything else. You matter. I matter. What you do every day matters. We're all connected for good or bad. I just want to pause here for a moment. You know, we're talking about a movie. We're listening to Jimmy Stewart and his character, George Bailey. But there are a lot of George Baileys out there. And as somebody once said, there's a broken heart sitting in every pew. Someone who is wondering if life is worth living. Someone who's tired and maybe ready to give up. Well, maybe that somebody is you. You might not have the benefit of time traveling to see with your own eyes just how critical your life is. But trust me, it's very critical. When our oldest son was maybe five, I remember waking him up in the morning for church. I said to him, you know, Riley, God has a big plan for your life. Well, he paused looking at me and he said, I know God has a big plan for me, but right now my underwear is too tight. 
I love that memory because it reminds me that there is always something going on that we can't see. The proverbial too tight underwear might be financial pressure, a strained relationship, a difficult boss, poor health, depression, shaky faith, you name it. Uh, But the best news is that whatever you're going through, the Lord knows. He cares. He understands. And we have friends to help us through. So let's finish with George Bailey, whose gift comes at the end of the movie in the form of his family and friends. Good idea, Ernie. A toast to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. never gets old. By the way, that little girl, Zuzu Bailey, who talks about the angel and the bell, uh, and by the way, I know her theology is way off, but that little girl is now 83. Her name is Catherine Grimes, and she's one of the remaining uh, living cast members of the film. I was thinking about that fact the other day, that when you see that big crowd of people gathered in George's house, pretty much all of them are gone. It's kind of sobering, but it's also a reminder, I think, to cherish what you have this Christmas. Uh, Look around the living room as you open your gifts. Look around your dining table. It won't always be as full as it is, and it certainly won't be just like it is. Okay, so let's turn to the next package under the tree. We're opening it up, and inside is Gene Shepard. His nickname was Shep, and... uh, He grew up to rule New York City's evening airwaves, radio airwaves, between the late 1950s and the mid-1970s. I never had the pleasure of meeting Gene Shepard, but we worked at the same radio station, which was a talker, uh, 710 AM WOR in Manhattan. Shep was a colorful storyteller with a penchant for wild hyperbole. The movie A Christmas Story, which is played around the clock on TV every Christmas, was adapted from a chapter in one of his novels. The book is titled, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. The soothing voice you hear throughout the film is Shepard's. He grew up in Indiana, and he had a brother named Randy. And yes, there was a Christmas when, much to the objection of his mother, a young Gene desperately wanted an air rifle, only to have it recoil and break his glasses after he finally uh, landed the gift. Now, viewers could be forgiven... Uh, for thinking that the whole plot and purpose is all about uh, Randy lobbying uh, and ultimately successfully for his gun. No, a Christmas story, I contend, revolves around Old Man Parker, who is the family's grumpy and grouchy patriarch. As goes Mr. Parker, who was played perfectly by Darren McGavin, so goes the whole bunch. Um, sure, it's the somewhat frazzled mother who was played by Melinda Dillon who keeps the kids fed and clothed. And finally, she's the one who puts her foot down about the leg lamp in the window. But the family looks to the father to keep everything running smoothly and on track. No heat in the house, 
Well, it's not the mother who grapples with the furnace. It's the dad. Uh, And in doing so, of course, he allows his temper to manifest in, quote, a tapestry of obscenity, uh, end quote. Now, as an aside, I'm not suggesting that a father's profanity is acceptable or admirable. My mom used to call it a sign of poor vocabulary. But uh, just a warning for those who haven't seen the film and want to show it to their kids. The profanity is concealed in mutterings. But when the father is excited about getting the major award, so is everyone else. They revel in his accomplishment, even though they seem somewhat confused by the degree of his elation about the leg lamp. When the tire blows on the car, it's the dad who changes it on the side of the snowy highway. When it's time to stop and buy a tree, it's the dad who negotiates. It's not the kids or the mother who changes the blown fuse, it's the father. We see him at the table uh, threatening to make his son eat or pontificating about the bears and the packers. Then the kids clearly love him, but they also seem to have a healthy dose of fear too. Now the old man seems like a guy's guy. He's a hard scrapple sword who loves his family even when they exasperate him. And when the Bumpus's dogs sneak into the house and destroy the family's dinner, Uh, including the prized turkey. It's Parker, Mr. Parker, who makes an executive decision to take the family out to the Chop Suey Palace, which was the only restaurant open in town. And when it comes to Ralphie's strong desire for Red Ryder BB gun, it's the old man who quells his wife's uh, fears that he'll shoot his eye out. It's the dad who buys the gun for his son. Now, good dads are like that. They remember what it was like to be a boy. Now, if mothers catastrophize, fathers can calm and sometimes defend boys to their mothers. Maybe that's because it's true uh, that a good dad enjoys reliving some of his joys in the life of his own son. It's as good, I think, to remember that especially a Christmas life doesn't revolve around possessions or presents, but people, and especially dads. Now, fathers, even imperfect ones like old man Parker, set the tone and help keep families together through all the ups and downs of life. A good dad is far more powerful than any physical weapon. They're devoted protectors and they're fierce defenders. They're heroes to emulate and they're examples to follow. They believe in us. They encourage us. So I want you to hear a clip from Gene's show. This is not from the movie. This is from his radio show. And the clip, though, is a precursor to the movie. You'll recognize the voice. And it's Christmas Eve, New York City, 1974. We stood in line. And Santa Claus got closer and closer, his great red form twinkling in the golden light. One moment, my brother and I were safely back in the tricycle and Irish mail department, and the next instant, we stood at the, at the foot of Mount Olympus itself. Santa's enormous, gleaming white snowdrift of a throne soared 10 or 15 feet above our heads in a mountain of red and green tinsel, carpeted in flashing Christmas tree bulbs and gleaming ornaments. Each kid in turn was proud of a tiny staircase at the side of the mountain on Santa's left, and as he passed his last customer onto his right and down a red chute, back into oblivion for another year. And over it all, the music was deafening. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Jingle bells, jingle all the way. Sung by an echo-chambered chorus that kept going on and on. I 
could see my brother's yellow and brown stocking cap. He's up there on Santa's knee. He squatted briefly. I heard a booming ho, 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 and then a high, thin, familiar trailing wail, one that I'd heard billions of times before, as my brother broke into his primal cry of fear. A claw dug into my elbow, and I was launched upward toward the mountaintop. My kid brother had disappeared. I had long before decided to level with Santa, to really lay it on the line. No Sandy Andy, no kid stuff. I was going to ride the range with Red Rider. Santa Claus was going to have to get the straight poop. And what's your name, little boy? What's your name, little boy? His booming baritone crashed out over the chipmunks that were singing. He reached down and neatly hooked my sheepskin collar, swooping me upward. And there I sat on the biggest knee in creation, looking down and out over the endless expanse of Toyland and down to the tiny figures. What's your name, little boy? record ended briefly, and it started up again. Over and over and over, they sang. Uh, uh, my head wouldn't work. I couldn't think. Uh, what, uh, 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 was all I could say. Uh, uh, that's a fine name, little boy. That's a fine name. Ho, ho, ho. Santa's warm, moist breath poured down over me through some cosmic steam radiator. Santa smoked camels, it smelled, just like my Uncle Charles. Ho, ho, ho. My mind had gone blank. I tried to remember what it was I wanted for Christmas, what I wanted. I was blowing it. I couldn't think. My head was gone. Santa kept going, ho, ho, ho. What would you like? Wouldn't you like a nice football, young man? Ho, ho. My mind groped. Football, football. Who the hell wants a football? All I could say was, yeah. I got a football. My mind slammed into gear already. Santa was sliding me off my knee towards the red chute. I didn't want a football. And I could see behind me already another white-faced kid was bobbing upward. I want a Red Rider BB gun with a special Red Rider sight and a compass and a stock and a sundial. I shouted, Ho, ho, ho! You'll shoot your eye out, kid! Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Down the chute I went. Down the chute I went. I've never been struck by a bolt of lightning, but I knew how it must feel. The back of my head was numb. My feet clanked leadenly beneath me. Oh my, such great storytelling. You know, Gene Shepard lived to see his story become a holiday staple. He toured the country and continued to tell his grand tales of his boyhood and beyond. You know, just last year, I actually spoke with Gene's old radio producers, Herb and Lori. They're a married couple. They kept up with Gene in his later years, and they even helped him start and run his own radio syndication operation. It was called International Jawbreakers. It was a company that they dreamed up over lunch at a Chinese restaurant, and it was Herb who edited Gene's shows down and helped distribute them nationally. Herb also rescued a closet of the radio raconteur's old tapes at WOR. Ironically, although Gene spoke freely and voluminously on air of his childhood and other adventures, he said very little of his current life and loves, they said. His third and final wife, uh, Leah Brown, became a trusted partner in the last two decades of his life. Uh, She helped him parlay his radio tales to the big screen and other television ventures. But, as you know, nothing lasts forever, and when Leah fell ill and passed away in 1998... The once brazen and bullish storyteller seemed to just lose his zest for life. The story stopped, and the grieving took over. So when um, Herb and Laurie called on him one last time at his home on Sanibel Island down in Florida, they said they found him a broken man without any bluster. Gene Shepard 
passed away a year later. That would be 1999. Now, Gene's voice and gift for storytelling, of course, lives on thanks to A Christmas Story. But I hope you'll see it a little differently this year and maybe even, even in the years to come if you keep watching it. Now, Hollywood rarely makes Christmas movies that delve into the true meaning of the holiday. Instead, they love to focus on all the secular uh, trappings, even though many of those traditions, like gift-giving and even even Santa Claus, have spiritual roots. A Christmas story, of course, is no different. But intentional or not, the critical presence of the father theme nevertheless points observance and thoughtful viewers to a larger meaning well beyond one boy's tireless pursuit of a Red Rider BB gun. Now, the original Christmas story, of course, is the ultimate father story. It's about a heavenly father who sent his only son to earth in the form of a helpless baby. It's a far more dramatic story than any radio host could ever spin, even one with as wild an imagination and an inclination for exaggeration as Gene Shepard. Now, there are still some gifts under the tree to open up. If you're listening... Uh, and have been listening, thank you. Uh, you're listening to a special Christmas edition of What a Life, Lessons from Legends. I hope you'll hang on after the break. When we come back, you'll hear from Winston Churchill, Paul Harvey, the astronauts of Apollo 8, and Ronald Reagan. We'll be back after this quick commercial timeout. Welcome back. I'm Paul Petura, and you're listening to a special Christmas edition of What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Christmas legends, in fact. Well, we've been talking about and hearing from the beloved actor Jimmy Stewart and the radio storyteller Gene Shepard, who is probably best known for the movie A Christmas Story. And that movie, by the way, just celebrated its 40th anniversary. I should have mentioned that. 40 years. And as we discussed, it was based on a book, and then Shepard used it on his Christmas Eve radio broadcast uh, cast several times. Now, Christmas and the radio just go well together. And in fact, they've gone together since the very beginning. It would have been impossible for Nikola Tesla and Guglielmo Marconi, radio's early pioneers, to have fully foreseen just how their invention would change the world. But change it did. Known originally as wireless telegraphy, the technology also owes its rise to a host of other characters, including a guy named Heinrich Hertz, who was the first to confirm the presence of invisible radio airwaves in the air, and Reginald Fessenden, a Canadian-born inventor who is credited with distributing the first radio broadcast, hold on, on Christmas Eve. That's right, Christmas Eve 1906. The engineer that day played O Holy Night on his violin, and he read from the Gospel of Luke. Now, radio has come a long way since that cold night at Ocean Bluff, Brant Rock, Massachusetts. Its rapid ascent in the 1920s and 30s made it the go-to medium for real-time information. Now, radio never took a holiday for Christmas, but it was more than just used for playing music and telling nice stories. It was used to unite people during difficult times and none more so, uh, never more so than during war. I wasn't planning on doing this, but it occurred to me here that on Christmas Eve of 1941, which is just weeks into World War II, Winston Churchill addressed the American people live on the radio from the White House. He was standing on the back porch, the portico, alongside Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and they were there that night to light the national Christmas tree. Now, keep in mind, 
This is just literally three weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Now, here's a portion of what Sir Winston Churchill said to an American audience, radio audience, on Christmas Eve of 1941. I spend this anniversary and festival far from my country, far from my family, and yet I cannot truthfully say that I feel far from home, whether it be whether it be by the ties of blood on my mother's side or the friendships I have developed here over many years of active life or the commanding sentiment of comradeship in the common cause of great peoples who speak the same language who kneel at the same altars and to a very large extent pursue the same ideals, whichever it may be, or all of them together, I cannot feel myself a stranger here in the center and at the summit of the United States. I feel a sense of unity and fraternal association which added to the kindliness of your welcome convinces me that I have a right to sit at your fireside and share your Christmas joys. Fellow workers, fellow soldiers, in the cause. This is a strange Christmas Eve. Almost the whole world is locked in deadly struggle. Armed with the most terrible weapons which science can devise, the nations advance upon each other. Ill would it be for us this Christmas died if we were not sure that no greed for the lands or wealth of any other people, no vulgar ambition, no morbid lust for material gain at the expense of others had led us to the field. Ill would it be for us if that were so. Here in the midst a war raging and roaring over all the lands and seas, creeping nearer to our hearths and homes. Here, amid all these tumults, we have tonight the peace of the spirit in each cottage home and in every generous heart. Therefore, we may cast aside for this night at least, the cares and dangers which beset us, and make for the children uh, an evening of happiness in a world of storm. Here then, for one night only, 
each home throughout the English-speaking world should be a brightly lighted island of happiness and peace. Let the ch- You know, I think we'd all benefit from Sir Winston Churchill's convictions and his willingness to go the distance. He never gave in and he never gave up. But isn't that a charming uh, broadcast uh, right from the White House on Christmas Eve of 1941. Now, about 20 years later, a little more than 20 years later, on another Christmas Eve, ABC radio newsman Paul Harvey delighted audiences, especially the kids, with a live broadcast from the North Pole. I've played this for my kids over the years. I mean, this is radio theater at its finest. Here at Santa's Polar Headquarters, it is at this moment just past 11 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, Christmas Eve. It is dark. It has been dark since September. It is cold. That is, to me, it's cold. It's 64 degrees below zero outside our broadcast shack. This, I understand, is comparatively mild, but it's snowing tonight. It does not snow here often, though there's always adequate ice on the polar cap. I understand from the Kringles that they have less snow here than we customarily have back in Chicago. Moments from now, I'm going to step outside this enclosure in the faint light of this Arctic night, I'm having some difficulty inside this radio shack with this glass window visibility again, so though my remarks may be less intelligible in the 45-knot wind that's swirling through the Santa Land tonight, I'm going to step outside presently for a better view. The workshops opposite resemble a beehive when I arrived late this afternoon, your time, but one by one, the lights in those long buildings have been going out. Ladies and gentlemen, I just received word from the good St. Nicholas himself that his ETA over the USA will be 1.53 a.m. That's just no, a little more than four hours from now. That means tailwinds are anticipated. We'd better get out there on the loading apron beside the runway. If you can give me a little more Mike Court, Dave Cole. Dave is another of the crew to whom we're indebted for absenting themselves from their stateside families this Christmas Eve to make this... Hi, George! Can you still hear me? Commander Bumpaw. Can you hear... I can see you from the through swirling snow, but uh, I'm going to assume that we're on the air. Santa's sleigh is still alongside the loading dock. Helpers are fussing with the eight reindeer harness. Dunder and Blitzen and Dancer, as previously announced in the States, Rudolph is not going to lead the hitch this year. For the first time in ten Christmases, Rudolph, whose red nose was a prime navigational aid for several of those years, is lame with a slightly injured fetlock, will stay behind. The newer navigational gear is under the front seat of the great sleigh. Radio contact will be maintained with remote control weather stations on the floating ice islands. These automatic devices have been made available by the United States Air Force. Actually, the sleigh will be in voice communication with Point Barrow shortly after gaining cruising altitude, but that's almost a thousand miles away. I passed Point Barrow just as... Oh, here, here comes St. Nicholas! Here comes... In the, in the yellow-lighted doorway of the Kringle residence, he's kissing Mrs. Kringle. He's kissing Mrs. Kringle, and she's smiling. She always worries until he's home safe, she says, but she's smiling. Look at the workshop elves. There must be uh, hundreds. I erroneously indicated moments ago that there uh, was no activity around here when the lights were going out, but the elves are all around the loading platform. Santa's waving and moving toward his sleigh on the steel net runway. It's still snowy slightly. Certainly those of us away from our families must be excused for saying this is a most momentous experience. I'm being motioned closer to the microphone. I can't get any closer. You take this thing up so the cold metal would not stick to my lips. And I, is this better? I'll, I'll hold the hood of my park up here so that I'm cutting the wind a little bit. The mooring housers have been relaxed and tossed uh, aboard now. As Santa's slate draws up this way, we can see the load of home. My goodness, we've been assured it's a record-smashing capacity this Christmas, but the sleigh has piled approximately 40, maybe 45 feet high with packages. There's a tarp drawn tight. The elves here. And Santa's waving so long, Santa. Excellent snow landing conditions have been promised down through the maritime provinces. Rooftop landings are practicable any weather with an air. And they're off. They're down the steel net runway, and they're off. I can see the running lights. I'm losing sight. He's circumvented. Santa is outside the door in just a house dress. My goodness, she's waving. Santa's waving and saying something. Did you get it? I got it. 
scheduled programs. Merry Christmas from the ABC Radio Network. Wasn't that great? I'm Paul Batura, and you're listening to a special edition of What a Life, Lessons from Legends. By the way, I'm not coming to you from the North Pole, but from Colorado Springs, home of Space Force. And uh, incidentally, speaking of outer space, we're going to turn our attention now to an extraordinary broadcast from Christmas Eve of 1968. Apollo 8 was the first manned mission to the moon. In fact, they orbited the moon 10 times, although they didn't actually land on it. That would happen that later that summer in 1969. Well, they blasted off on December 21st of 1968. And three days later, on Christmas Eve, they were still uh, orbiting. There were three astronauts on the mission, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders. Frank Borman actually just died last month at the age of 95. James Lovell is also 95 and still alive. William Anders is also still with us. He's young. He's only 90. But knowing they were going to be in space over Christmas, the astronauts began brainstorming what kind of special message they wanted to offer. They came up with a few ideas, but didn't really like any of them. The Vietnam War was raging, and they felt that none of their suggestions were hitting the mark. But then the idea of reading from the Bible was floated, and all three men agreed. So that's what they did. And here's how it sounded. It was heard by a billion people. That's a billion with a B. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Well, I'm Paul Batura, and you're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends, a special Christmas edition today. Now, would that ever fly? I mean, today, would that ever fly? No pun intended. I doubt it. You know, even back then, Madeline Murray O'Hare, who was the founder of American Atheists, uh, sued, and she claimed it violated the First Amendment. 
Somehow, uh, fortunately, the case was dismissed. Now, as I mentioned, the message was heard live by a billion people, and it wound up reaching 64 countries all within a day. Now, never before had scripture been heard by so many people all at once. But that's the power of Christmas, and that's the beauty of the holiday, which captivates hearts and grabs attention every year. Um, We've been listening today to a very wonderful array of legendary folks, household names, who have uh, touched our hearts on Christmas. We've heard from Jimmy Stewart, uh, Gene Shepard, Winston Churchill, Paul Harvey, and then most recently here, the three astronauts of Apollo 8. But before we wrap up, I want to open up one last package under the tree. It's a special message from Ronald Reagan, who was our 40th president. Incidentally, Ronald Reagan celebrated all eight of his Christmases as president in the White House because he didn't want to minimize the number of people, uh, or he wanted, I should say, to minimize the number of people who missed Christmas with their families. They would celebrate uh, in Washington, and then after Christmas, they would head out to California and to their beloved ranch. But back in 1982, Ronald Reagan invited children to the White House. There and there, beside one of the big trees, the Gipper read an extraordinary poem. I first heard it when I was five years old, and my uh, mom and dad had taken us all to the Christmas stage show at uh, Radio City Music Hall in New York City. Now, for the last 90 years, Radio City Music Hall's Christmas program has concluded with a live nativity presentation. It's a massive procession of animals, including camels and donkeys and sheep, and of course, an actor portraying Joseph and an actress as Mary, both adoring and celebrating the birth of the baby Jesus. Now, as the scene unfolds, the voice of a narrator is heard reciting a poem that's entitled One Solitary Life. And the 1926 poem was written by a pastor, the Reverend James Allen Francis. Now, in a city known for its secularism and which has even been known to celebrate its sin, thousands of unsuspecting theater goers are hearing this remarkable life story every day for the two months uh, leading up to Christmas. Now, I'd love for you to hear it, and even better, to hear it from the late President Ronald Reagan. Welcome to the White House. More than anything else, Christmas at the White House has always been a children's holiday. American presidents, whether they were widowers like Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, or beaming grandfathers like the Roosevelts and Dwight Eisenhower, have always made Christmas a celebration for young people. And that's true of another president who's used to having children around at Christmas. The story of the birth of Jesus. But since that time, down through the years, there have been many legends and stories and poems. And there was a great writer, Dickens, who wrote a story that lives today and has lived for many years called Christmas Carol. When Franklin D. Roosevelt was president of this country, every year he used to read that story to his family. Now, I have another piece that's about Christmas that uh, I'd like to read to you because I think it tells a great deal about this day. It's called One Solitary Life. You know what that means, just one single life. And I think it describes the meaning of Christmas. There was a man born of Jewish parents in an obscure village 
the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 years old. And then for three years, he was what's called an itinerant preacher. He, he traveled around just preaching on street corners and wherever people would gather and listen. He never wrote a book. He never held an office of any kind. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city and never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. And while still a young man, preaching as he was doing, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away from him. He was turned over to his enemies. They went through the mockery of a trial. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had, his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave. Nineteen wide centuries, nineteen hundred years or more, almost two thousand have come and gone. And today, he is the centerpiece of much of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that ever were built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all of the kings that ever reigned, have not affected the life of man upon this earth. All put together as powerfully as this one solitary life. I've always believed that the story of that young man of Jesus is a story of hope. If we live our lives for truth and for love, because that's what he told us to do, and for God, we never have to be afraid. God will be with us. He'll be a part of something much larger, much stronger, and much more enduring than any force that has ever existed on this earth. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Well, there's a good reason Ronald Reagan was known as the great communicator, but before we close out the program, I think a few words deserve to be said of the Reverend James Allen Francis, who actually wrote the poem that the late president just read. Pastor Francis wrote it two years before he died in 1928. He was born in 1864 in Nova Scotia, and uh, during his ministry, he shepherded churches in New York City and Los Angeles. You know, on a program about legends, I certainly can't think of anyone better to land on come Christmas uh, than Jesus of Nazareth. And so I want to end with a personal story. As a janitor at our church back in high school, I had the privilege of helping my boss build and decorate the life-size front lawn stable each December. We'd lug the brown wooden panels up from the basement. We'd lay in the straw and staple evergreen boughs to the roof. We always affixed a blue light inside. Now, all the figurines were positioned weeks before Christmas, but our pastor didn't allow us to lay the baby Jesus in the creche until twilight on December 24th. It was a tradition I enjoyed. On a frigidly cold year, I found myself bundling up the small clay figurine and trudging through the snow out onto the front lawn of the church. Now, the area at the time was awash in the glow of the white lights on the evergreen trees surrounding the stable. Now, ducking inside the dry 
uh, crash and it was protected from the howling Arctic wind, the air suddenly grew quiet and I could hear the crunch of the straw under my feet. I gently placed Jesus in the wooden trough. Now, I didn't hear any voices or angels singing, but my heart felt full at the moment. It gave me a new appreciation for the melodic words that many of us sing from memory each year. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus, asleep on the hay. Now, antagonists of religious freedom like to challenge the legality of crush displays on government property. Vandals have been known to steal and desecrate them. But drive through most towns today and you'll see one or two or even more. Now, despite cultural battles, crushes like Christmas itself carry on. And for that reason, I cheer. That's because from the White House to my house and in millions of homes the world over, manger scenes remind us that despite all the commercial trappings of twinkling lights and music and gifts and food, a helpless and innocent baby remains, as always, the true store, the true star of the Christmas story. Well, thanks for listening. Please join us next week for a conversation with Horst Schultze, co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton. And Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.